Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. So I'm going to take a, like a circuitous path this morning to try and make my point. Uh, we got to take a little roundabout way. It's the only way I could think of how to get to what I want to talk about. So long before the, the Christian New Testament was written, you had the Jewish scriptures, right? So you had the Jewish scriptures and scholars, and there were scholars and there was different schools of thought about how to interpret those different scriptures, uh, much like today in, in the, the Christian world. We've got different interpretations, different translations, things like that. We're familiar with some of these schools of thought from the scriptures themselves, the gospels. Think about the the Sadducees versus the Pharisees, right? The Sadducees were a group that only accepted the first five books of Moses, which really limited limited what they, um, well, it obviously limited their scope and it also limited their own theological worldview, right? So they were the ones who denied um, angels, resurrection, those sorts of things. So it was a very different interpretation from the Pharisees. All of this gave rise to all sorts of different questions about um, how to interpret laws, which laws were binding, how do we apply the law. This is very much part of how the Pharisees kind of rose to a position of prominence. They were the ones who um, were interpreting for the common man, so to speak. What, is it, what does this law actually mean in concrete practice? What is the law of thou shalt rest, so to speak, on the Sabbath? What does that look like? Do I just have to sit in a chair? Am I allowed to sit in a chair? Right? So the Pharisees gave a lot of interpretation. So even up until the time of Christ, there was still a lot of ambiguity about how to interpret the scriptures. Okay, fast forward now to resurrection morning, right? Resurrection morning. To that scene from Luke's gospel, that incredibly beautiful scene where you've got two disciples walking away from Jerusalem, walking to a little town called Emmaus, We all know the story where the Lord, he draws near to them and uh, they're prevented from recognizing him. And he begins to engage them in conversation and dialogue, asking them questions. What are you talking about as you walk along the way? About Jesus of Nazareth, how he was a prophet, mighty and true. We thought he was going to be the one and now it's the third day and on and on, so, so on and so forth. After these preliminary questions and dialogue, Jesus says to them, It says, and beginning with Moses, Luke records this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So it's Luke's way of saying the scriptures, right? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, meaning Jesus, explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. All the scriptures concerning himself. He's reinterpreting all of it in light of himself. And so we obviously we know how this little vignette from Luke's gospel, how this story ends. They recognize him in the breaking of the bread. They tear off back to Jerusalem with this incredible news. We've seen the Lord. He's in our midst. And I'm convinced that what he shared with them on that incredible walk back to, oh, that walk to Emmaus, I'm convinced that those insights that Jesus shared with them, that laid the bedrock foundation for how Jesus' disciples began to interpret the scriptures. In other words, like they, I'm sure, were sharing with the other apostles, and then he made this connection. He pointed to this, and this pointed to Jesus, and so on and so forth, right? They began going on a treasure hunt, I'm sure, the earliest Christians, 
looking in the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, looking through all of those and things began to pop to life. They began to see how this connected to him and how this scene pointed to him. All these people, places, and events in the, what we call the Old Testament, how they were all prefiguring what happened in Christ's life. In other words, this, is, this lays the foundation for what the church fathers called the typological read or the typological lens of the scriptures, right? They were noticing how people, places, events, situations in the Old Testament were prefiguring and were fulfilled by people, places, events, situations in the New Testament in the life of Jesus. Paul brings this up in his own letters. He talks about Christ being the type of, or Adam being the type of the one to come. You have these Old Testament types, these tableaus, these figures who are fulfilled by their New Testament fulfillments. This is how the early Christians, how the church fathers, how they saw the connections between things like Noah's Ark and the church, or between the floodwaters of the ark and the flood, uh, the, the Red Sea, and, and how all of that pointed to baptismal regeneration, life coming through, passing through the waters, or how the slaughter of the Hebrew males in Exodus points to and parallels the slaughter of the innocents in Bethlehem, or all the parallels of the, Paschal, the Passover sacrifice, the Paschal lamb, unblemished, no broken bones, right? And how that points to Christ, the, the Paschal lamb, right? Or the connection between Abraham and Isaac and God the Father and Jesus. All of these connections. Or thinking about the Ark of the Old Covenant being fulfilled by Mary, the Ark of the New Covenant, right? All of this is how the church from the beginning began to interpret these things typologically. And speaking of Mary, my favorite typological theological image from the Old Testament that's fulfilled in the New Testament is what we heard in this first reading today. The encounter that Moses has with the burning bush. We're all so familiar with that scene, but Moses draws near to the bush. What he notices is that the bush is on fire, but it's not consumed. It's on fire, but it's not consumed. So what, is, what fulfills this image from the Old Testament but Our Lady? right? Mary is the burning bush of the New Testament who herself opens herself to the fire of the Holy Spirit, is filled with divine life. And what do we see? She's on fire but not consumed. How is she depicted in the book of Revelation? She's depicted as this woman clothed in the sun, right? literally filled with fiery glory but not consumed, not destroyed. What I, just, what I particularly love about this image is how it just lays bare this ancient lie from the enemy that he's been whispering to humanity since the dawn of time, since the fall, namely that there's this inverse relationship between humanity and divinity. That you, man, the enemy's been saying, you will be compromised if you let him get too close. That your life, your light, it will dim if you allow this divine light to become closer and closer into your life. If The more you allow God to encroach upon your world, the more that you're going to be consumed, the more you're going to be pushed down, diminished. You're going to be forfeiting freedom, forfeiting joy. You will lose out is what the enemy whispers to us. And so what we often do is we often segment parts of our life and keep 
God out of parts of our life because there's parts of our hearts that are still convinced that it's an inverse relationship, that if God gets close to this part of my life, I will lose. I will lose out in the end. And the truth is the exact opposite. You will be on fire but not consumed. You won't be burnt up or destroyed. You will be filled to overflowing super abundance. This is, this is who our God is. This is what he's been at pains to communicate. This is what Jesus is communicating. I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. He's not the one who said, I came that you might have life and that it would be boring. Right? That's not the Lord. Right? When the Lord goes fishing, he sinks fishing boats because he catches so much fish. When the Lord makes wine, he makes so much wine, there's 180 gallons in wine left over. When he makes bread, he feeds 15,000 people and there's fragments left over. He's not a God who's stingy. He's a God of superabundance. And I'm thinking about St. Irenaeus. I think he just said it most succinctly centuries ago when he just simply said, the glory of God is man fully alive. Gloria Dei homo vivens. The glory of God is man fully alive. But there's a direct relationship between God and humanity. The closer we allow him to get, the more fully alive we become. So let it be a challenge for us today, friends, as we look at our own hearts and lives, at those, maybe those parts that are segmented off, um, areas that just, like, we just don't let him into, because we're convinced that I have to maintain control of this, or if I let God come near this, then I'm going to be diminished. Let the burning bush tell you otherwise. It's on fire but not consumed.